or most recent at the time we recorded it. It won't be recent forever, but this is our episode on Richard Hooker with our guest, Sean Duncan. And before we get into the show, I um, just want to welcome everyone who's tuning in. We're a, a show that uh, covers history and theology within the broader Protestant tradition. And of course, Richard Hooker is a very important person that we're going to discuss today. And uh, as a reminder, if you haven't, uh, if, and if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, go ahead and give us uh, on there, give us a rating, give us five stars, one star, however you honestly feel about us, we can take it and we will appreciate any feedback <laughs> you can get from us. So uh, today we have Reverend Sean Duncan. The, he is a rector of Trinity Episcopal Church in Marshall, Texas, and he's a PhD student at University of Edinburgh, or Edinburgh. <laughs> so uh, we had a, in our pre-show conversation. I don't. I've never exactly known how to pronounce that, but um, I used to call it Edinburgh. For, so forgive me, our Scottish audience, which we do have a couple listeners from Scotland. So <laughs> maybe they can write in and tell you. Yeah, they can write in and tell email us. So and by the way, you can email us. There's a uh, a podcast email address in our show info. You can always send us. Uh, corrections or questions or suggestions or anything you like. So, so Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, uh, let's catch up on some things, man. Like, so for our listeners, uh, Sean and I used to serve um, in Shreveport together in ministry. But how's your ministry going these days, Sean? Things are going pretty great. Um, I... I'm now at uh, Trinity Episcopal Church in Marshall, Texas. I'm the rector there. Mm-hmm. Actually, just had my installation this past Sunday. Oh, you had your installation, really? Mm-hmm. Great. Yep. So that was nice service. Now, how? Where are they in that? Is it they have music again, or I know the, the Episcopal Church is kind of in different places depending on what diocese you're in. But yeah. So according to the Diocese of Texas, which we're in, mm-hmm. they have these different guidelines according to different phases and things like that. Mm-hmm. It happens to be that Harrison County where Marshall is, is pretty rural. Mm-hmm. I say it is definitely rural. Yeah. And, um, and so we are now in phase three, which enables, uh, people can sing, um, the, the distancing requirements are not there anymore. There's still some masking requirements are still there, but, sure. uh, but most everything else is is lifted. That's good. We um, we recently could bring back singing in the diocese of Western Louisiana, and uh, it's just, it's been good to hear music again. Um, you know, I think it's good sometimes to go without things, um, you know. But then because it, it, you appreciate it when it returns, <laughs> and so right. uh, you know, we're back. We're we're back to a lot of normal, and. Um, so, and you're at Trinity. Now, you and uh, you're doing your research, of course, on Richard Hooker. What led to your interest in, uh, what kind of, sep- what, what kind of brought you to Richard Hooker? Mm-hmm. Uh, your interest in him? Well, um, I knew, I didn't grow up Episcopalian. And uh, when I became an Episcopalian, it was on the way to becoming a priest. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I had some familiarity with it, which is why I started going. Um, But I wanted to be able to sort of drill down a little bit deeper and and figure out the the tradition. And Richard Hooker is the guy that everybody at least wants to claim, right? Right. You know, you're always you always want to have the different parties (laughs) like to lay claim to him. Right. Get into that part, I'm sure, a little bit later, but. Right. But yeah, Hooker's kind of the the closest thing to like 
an author of Anglicanism, if you will, maybe the closest thing to like a very, to a systematic thinker. And so that, is that what it was that kind of just like, who's the representative? Who can I really read from? To no, show me where, this? where am I going to, where am I going to start first? I mean, I, <laughs> uh, you know, if, if everyone is, is going to be looking at him, at least in some capacity, sure. I want to be familiar with him. Mm-hmm. And as I read him, um, I found uh, quite a bit of continuity with what I had seen before. And okay. now, what were you before? Presbyterian. Okay. Yeah. Uh, not not completely, but uh, particularly when he talked about justification by faith, I thought mm-hmm. this is very, this is much more similar than I thought it was. Yeah. Well, I felt that as a former Lutheran, the Reformation yeah. understanding yeah. he carries up forward. You know? That's right. Um, so cool. So. You come from so you come from a broader reform background, yeah. And yeah. Anglicanism has a history in that too, uh, more. I mean, especially in yeah. the time we're mm-hmm. talking. So I think, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I could naturally I could see where Hooker would be of, of interest. So, um, so, and I know we're going to get maybe more into the specifics. I know that he's basically your personal study or topic of study in your doctoral program. So. I'm comparing him with uh, with a, a conformist. Puritan of the same era, okay, and um, looking at their their understandings of theological authority, okay, three different points. Because my 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 thought is is that they're they're not as far apart as uh, some would like to think that they are. Uh, yeah. They're not yeah. the same, but they are not quite particularly Hooker and this other individual. Yes, or, William Whitaker. Yeah, William Whitaker. Okay. I know the name Whitaker. Not now. I know I've I've heard it said. You know the 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 word Puritan kind of gets well, definitely gets a negative connotation. Today, mm-hmm. but there were different kind. There were different layers of Puritan, different kinds of Puritan. Right? There were conformists. Yep. So. Yep. Yep. So yeah, that's one of the contested. You know, the the definitions of who is an Anglican, who is a Puritan. What do those mean? Those mm-hmm. are highly highly contested in. Yeah, scholarship. So there, are, there were, there were sort of extreme uh, Puritans, which would be called, I guess, disciplinarians or or Presbyterians at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are the people Hooker really addressed in his. That's right. That's right. These were the one. He was. They were in opposition right. to many of the things he stood for. Right. Okay. But there were also some Puritans who would were conformists. They, mm-hmm. they accepted the Book of Common Prayer, they accepted bishops uh, and all of that, but had that sort of uh, mentality uh, right. wanting to purify the church. Right. More of, an, more of a reforming emphasis, perhaps, right. than right. other establishment. But they were establishment. They wanted to stay in the Church of England. Right. Okay. Right. And so, yeah, you, so you have, depending on how you define your Puritan, you define your, I don't know, your Anglican, although that's contested too, whether or not that and was I, actually a thing. And I feel like it's fluid too, because I mean, what, what, be, what we would think, how we, we, we would define it in one time period is different from how you define those terms in another. Mm-hmm. And, um, so yeah, uh, so you de- so, and I know this is a big question, but there's lots of ways to answer this. The hooker is definitely important. Why is he? Why is it important uh, as an Anglican to study to study Richard Hooker or to read from? As for for an Anglican for to an study Anglican, him, yeah. There's a follow up little question to this. Okay, uh, but we're, this is more specific as an Anglican. Why is it important yeah. to study Hooker? Well, as, as I say, there's. I mean, there's there's nobody. I mean, there's nobody. Like for instance, the the Anglican tradition doesn't really have a a Luther or mm-hmm. or a Calvin, um, but if they were, if we were to have one, it would right. be him. Um, right. So you know you're going to have to reckon with his understanding of things if you want to say this is the Anglican sure. position. Um, if you are so inclined to think right. that way now, and, uh, I'll save the other part of that question for later. Um, it, I'll tell, I'll let you, it, we can revisit it. You don't have to answer it now, but why is it important for any Christian to study? Mm, yep. Big one. We can get yep. back to that though. 
Um, sure. If that's all right. Uh, so, uh, so okay. I lost my train of thought. We asked <laughs> about why uh, it's important for Anglicans to to study. Okay, so so maybe just some basic overview of him, biographical, if you will. But like, yep. what what years? Not exactly, but because I'm I'm not big on I love history, but I'm not in it for the dates and getting the dates exactly. <laughs> like, because that doesn't matter. They're just numbers. But like, to an extent. But like, you know, what what part of the church's history is? Hooker's life and career in yeah. ministry, basically. Yeah, so Hooker Hooker was born during the reign of Queen Mary. Okay. Uh, but lived, of course, most of his life during the reign of Elizabeth. Okay. And died in 1600. And um, so he lived most of his life in that Elizabethan settlement. Yeah. yeah. And he is kind of the quintessential Elizabethan... Theologian, perhaps, would he? Would, um... Yeah, I mean, so there, there are some people would say that he was sort of moving, moving the church away from that settlement to a more Catholic understanding of things. Sure. Uh, some would say he was sort of this was the Elizabethan settlement. Um, mm-hmm. I tend to be more on the on the side of he was part of that Elizabethan settlement. Yeah. It was a gen, he was generally a reformed theologian. Right. Um, he was not, uh, reformed as in reformed, like a Helvetic confession or something like that. He's not, not sure. there. Not um, the, the Dort Synod, the five, the tulip, the tulip Calvinist. Yeah. He would not, he would not be there as his understanding of predestination was more along the lines of, uh, formula of Concord. So, okay. Predestination, um, but he has a lot. A lot of his theology, particularly his Christology, is very reformed in the mm-hmm. traditional sense. Sure, and I've read that too. I know um, for our listeners, uh, we mentioned earlier how different parties or the wings of Anglicanism, which some of our past episodes have addressed, kind of there's three generic wings, or you've seen. Or, you know, that have arisen within Anglican history and they each kind of look to Hooker. They also kind of look to Cramner too, but they kind of look to them as, um, and they kind of like to claim them for themselves and say, well, mm-hmm. the, um, we're just in the trajectory that he set. We don't, we owe it all to Hooker. And I often hear from Hooker that, um, that he, he helped the church of England, you know, navigate, define itself, which I think he did. And also that it's a, you know, you hear the term via media or middle way. Mm-hmm. Now, what was that? Now, I have a sense he was navigating, like he was trying to avoid extremes. When we get into laws of ecclesiastical polity and books he wrote, you mm-hmm. definitely see where he's trying to be a voice of reason and avoid extremes mm-hmm. or holes. Mm-hmm. But what kind of middle ground do you see Hooker really working toward? Is it? I mean, I, a lot of times in our modern popular narrative, it's, you know, between Catholic and Protestant. Right. I mean, I could see some some of how where that comes from, but then also kind of knowing who he was, then that's maybe a simplification. Where, where do you see yourself mm-hmm. in, in that? I think that Hooker saw himself as a someone in the line of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sees the development of the the church in in the Protestant direction as being the 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 right corrective that needed to be made. The truly Catholic. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, he's like Luther and Calvin in that sense. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's I think that's very much Torrance Kirby is the sort of uh, Hooker scholar who's sure. big into that. I think he's right on. And he's, he was the, because I remember reading Kirby Fuse, but he was the first to really, it was kind of, he was kind of provocative in a sense. Because Was he one of the first scholars to really bring that to light? That, I believe so, yeah. I mean, it seemed to me like he was. Um, I mean, they're probably, well, I don't know, if, I don't know Hooker's scholarship, to, like the history of Hooker's scholarship. Mm-hmm. I know he's he's living and he's, you know, relatively recent. He's, he's you know. Right, so, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so you're, you're in the hook, you're in the Kirby camp. <laughs> I would say I'm generally in the Kirby camp. Kirby yes. camp, because he's he. If you if you look at his 
his positions on most things and you compare him with not only someone like uh, Hooker or Luther, but, you know, continental reformers mm-hmm. uh, or Peter Martyr Vermeule, um, mm-hmm. especially, um, he's going to line up pretty pretty solidly on most of those things. Right. And I think that it, it comes from a, a misunderstanding of where Protestantism actually was um, because you see you see Hooker responding to these Puritans, but that those Puritans are sort of held up as the Protestant position. And if he's yeah. you know, going against that, well, then he must not well, really Especially now looking back, we see them as those that they're the examples of Protestants then, right? But Protestant was a bigger tent then than yeah, really oh yeah, right. yeah. So the 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 disciplinarians, so mm-hmm. Thomas Cartwright, uh, Walter Travers, these guys, yeah. they were they were on a very extreme end. Yeah. So what had happened was during Queen Mary's reign, mm-hmm. um, she of course was was executing all of the sort of top Protestant Bloody people. Bloody Mary, yes. Bloody Mary, that's right. And so most of the Protestants fled the country, the, the big-name mm-hmm. Protestants fled the country. By the time they came back, they had, I mean, understandably so, become more sure. zealous, let's say, for a, a fuller reformation right. in England. They had fuel. For, there was fuel added to their fire. <laughs> right, right. So, well, yeah, I went to Geneva. Well, I think they went they went different places, yeah. but some some of them I'm sure that they did. And you know, coming back with with that sort of zeal, and what Hooker says at the beginning of of the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, which is his major work, mm-hmm. the preface to that, is he says that what these what these sort of uh, more zealous types are wanting to do is they're wanting to say they're wanting to take a good thing that scripture is sufficient for the end for which it was instituted mm-hmm. and are wanting to make it sufficient for everything right. that could be done right yes. so Cartwright will say you know even something as small as picking up a straw is is spoken of in, uh, about in scripture and right. And whether we should do it or we should not do it, and if right. Scripture doesn't say it, then we ought not to be doing it. There's a the principle, right? Regulative principle versus the, it, there's names for that, right? Of how much does you know if if, if you you can't go against there, there's secondary things Scripture doesn't speak of, and you right. can do any of those things. But then there's also what you just said about the scripture actually does speak to every single thing. Regulative principle. Refresh me on that. I'm, Cause I, I, what's regular, what's the regulative principle is that the regulative principle is if there is something in scripture, if, if something is not spoken of in scripture, then we may not do it. If, if something's not spoken of it, then we may not. Do right. It. Okay. We only do things that are spoken of commanded. So in it's scripture. much more prescriptive. It's much more strict. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, Hooker's not that. No, he would he's, he would be totally more not. in line with the Thirty Nine <laughs> Articles position that if it is not repugnant to Scripture, it's not it, okay. So, and then we may do it. And that, yeah, and I uh, so and a lot of that is I feel like that's most of what the books from Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity mm-hmm. um, address. At least the books that I've read, what they address. Um, so I wanted to plug in that uh, a book I would recommend our listeners if you really want to see firsthand, uh, in a way, uh, the writings of Hooker and um, really his most important work, The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity in um, Modern English, it's called. The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity in Modern English. I picked up a copy. Of, well, I didn't pick it up. I uh, electronically purchased and downloaded a copy in the past few days, and I've been reading through read read through quite a bit of it then kind of skipped around and there's lots of just quotable things in it now i know it's it's a modern english translation um but i think it it's still uh it's really just made me um really appreciate hooker a lot uh because he had such a he had a wit about him and really a a genius about uh 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 the way he would debate and consider um, 
you know, the arguments of the opposition and then how, how he would break that down and try to show that it was flawed. But he does it with, um, he constantly reminds uh, us during the writing, because you see with reformers like Luther particularly, they can get pretty nasty with like <laughs> the people that are dressed. I mean, I'm thinking like Luther and Erasmus mm-hmm. back and forth. And Hooker had more of a gentle, uh, always reminded that that love and meekness go a lot farther than just mm-hmm. trying to prove your point. So, you know, but either way, he still hits home runs in this, I thought, with just some of the arguments that he made. So in uh, and uh, you know a little bit about the history of that, of of this modern English translation. So it came out of, was it Brad Littlejohn or? Uh, yeah. Okay. The. Davenant Institute okay. uh, put it out. Brad Littlejohn is is a Hooker scholar, mm-hmm. um, as well as uh, Bradley Belshner and Brian Marr. Uh, I actually had uh, uh, a, a hand in a, a couple of the books of it okay. uh, to be able to do that, um, which was a lot of fun. But yeah, they. What I think the the, the modernization does really well. Hooker is not widely read because right. he because he is um, not the easiest to understand. Even in his day, he, right. <laughs> he wasn't right. easy to understand. Right. Um, he could be really clear when he wanted to be, but mm-hmm. um, he, you know, he, it was just he's difficult to read. And so having the modernization the way it is, you can see, you can have the ideas there before you. It's not mm-hmm. a substitute for, for actually for reading actually the laws. But. but to get sort of a summary of, okay, this is where he's going with this. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially book one is, is very... Book uh, one's great. I found it relatively easy to follow. Of course, I mean, I, you know, I'm a theology student and I'm you know, more accustomed, I guess, to reading some of these types of tracts and... You know, but still, I, th- I thought it was, um, I was like, wow, that's why I'm plugging it in, plugging it in, plugging it in here. I, it's just, I feel like there's so many Episcopalians and Anglicans who've not, not read it. Uh, and they really should. I mean, you have a, you have an appreciation, I think a greater, a great appreciation, greater appreciation for, uh, the tradition you're a part of by doing so. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's really great that you actually get a hand in, in it. And, um, so uh, I like uh, from page 223 in that book, I'm going to quote it. Uh, this is quoted from Hooker, or at least the modernization of Hooker. Um, he, he, and this is, he's, he's addressing here uh, those, I guess, radical type of Puritans, um, the disciplinarians that we mentioned before, who wanted to do away with, you know, a lot of things more so than... Um, the conformist Puritans and ones that, I mean, in many ways wanted to overhaul the church of England, the way it's governed, it's polity, what we call, you know, how the church is governed. And, and he's, and basically it's the, they're very much advocates for Presbyterian polity for our listeners. Of course, um, many of you know that Presbyterian, of course, is a denomination that we know of, of course, but back then you could say Presbyterian with a small P it was like uh, it, was, it was a system where you don't have the type of oversight of having bishops, but it's basically like a pastor overseeing like a parish is basically. Well, I don't know. I didn't get to the quote yet, but I was just giving some backdrop to this yeah. quote because I needed to do it. Lay, lay elders um, are, well, I, I, I don't know how exactly, it, I think it's ordained now, but mm-hmm. at the time when, when they were, when they were going over this, it was lay elders uh, okay. during the the time of the writing of the laws. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a pastor is one of those elders. So okay. it's a group, you know, uh, Calvin had a consistory. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's right. Yeah, the but, consistory is what it's called, yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, not, not, uh, not a singular uh, focus of uh, a bishop um, mm-hmm. that the, the, the College of Presidents Presbyters, sure. and of course, the Presbyterian denomination today has that system, more or less. That's why they're 
called Presbyterian. Um, but yes, but this quote, he, so Hooker's addressing these people that, what, that think they should need to have this system because it's the only biblical way of doing things and nothing else. Hooker says, those who call for the church to return to its former state cannot help but qualify their claims. If any practice has appeared which violates the spirit of what was first established in the church, then we must return to the former things. However, where the new practice is consistent with the old principles, our respect for the ancient practice need not cause us to reject the new practice, unquote. And I thought that was a good, reasonable approach. Um, because, and he separates principles from practice, right? Mm. Um, and, and that's, just, you know, he's just saying, look, you know, uh, churches can, you can have different types of governance in a church depending on what the situation is. Mm-hmm. And uh, for these people that were basically insisting my way or the highway, because they saw that as the truly apostolic system, right? That's mm-hmm. what, that's the way Jesus and the disciples ran the church. And Hooker has some other, if you read the book, you'll see other um, parts in there where Hooker is just like, okay, there is actually not a lot of biblical <laughs> data to say that is the exact way they let it. I mean, we don't exactly know. There's, you know, so he really um, he kind of challenged them to honestly look at as much as they want to appeal to scripture, maybe honestly actually take a look at it and see if that's, you yeah. know, so yeah, I thought that was pretty, pretty cool. So uh, they would, they would have, they, they had an understanding of, of scripture to where if there is something that is necessary for, our life, then it must be addressed by Scripture. So mm-hmm. then, if if we need church governance, then it must be addressed by Scripture, and not just addressed, but commanded. Right? Mm-hmm. That this this particular way is commanded, um, and and not anything else. Right. Hooker is saying it, church governance is not one of those things that is absolutely laid out in Scripture as this is the way that right. it has to be. Mm-hmm. So it's it's it, he's not making he's not making the uh, the argument that some of the more high church people of of his day were saying was no no this is of the essay of the church this is of the, the very sure. being of the church he's not saying that he's saying he's saying that there are depending upon the situation that you have each national church is able to organize itself or organize mm-hmm. its governments governance according to what. It feels right, right because it's not explicitly laid out in Scripture that it has to be this particular way. Versus another, yeah. There are, what he says about them is that they have, you have probable arguments. You have like, you have, okay, I can see how that might be the case, but you don't have any sort of demonstrable argument of here it is, boom, this, you know. Right. Um, and so if that is the case, then there is, we have to understand the the place that scripture holds within the sort of realm of the way God created the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's all of book one is that these various, the natural that, law, right. right? That there is that God is law. God, the law of God's law, the eternal law is the law by which God governs himself, basically his, his mm-hmm. character, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's how he does all that he does. And out of that come all these derivative types of sure. law, whether it's a celestial law for angels or it's uh, you know positive law for human beings, natural law, and divine law. Divine law right. being being holy scripture. And if you have those things, if you have that understanding, then if something is not specifically commanded in scripture, uh, you don't have to pry something into scripture that's yeah. not there you look and you say well then in in the wisdom that god has given us in general revelation how how can we make a wise decision right. about x in this case church governance right. like how what's what's wise here mm-hmm. well the church has always done it like this there's never been b- before right before because calvin there really wasn't right. anything other than bishops like, so for 1500 years we had Bishops, I mean, you, you, for fifteen hundred years, we were making that we were making a mistake the whole time. I mean, that's basically. But you also say um, he also didn't argue necessarily that bishops is the only way. Like the episcopacy is the essay of. The, I know in a lot of a lot of modern Anglican, especially like high church mm-hmm. understandings, it's it's the essay, right? It's the, right. 
it, it's an essential to the church to have bishops, and Hooker wasn't necessarily on that end either. Or no, he wasn't. Okay, he 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 said Jesus Christ is the essay of the church. Sure. Um, he he doesn't he doesn't say that he has a, a specific book where he talks about bishops, mm-hmm. um, and you know people go back and forth about where he actually ended up uh, yeah. landing. But um, what I mean his whole his whole point in in the laws is that there there are these particular things that are not you know um, mm-hmm. they're not specifically set forth in scripture. He's he says that there's good there's good evidence that this is from the the time of the apostles, right? Right. I mean, Ignatius uh, of Antioch. Oh yeah, like he, 100 AD. Yeah. 100 AD. Yeah. He wasn't arguing for bishops. Right. He, he was assuming bishops. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, so there's it's not it's not of the essay of the church to where if someone doesn't have or a church doesn't have bishops, it is not a church. Right. He, he never goes that, that way. That would rule out a lot of them. Well, and even the Anglican, I remember that there was a 1920 Lambeth Anglican Communion recognized the spiritual reality of of church bodies that didn't have bishops or apostolic succession. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I like to point that out for people that get a little bit too, too die on the hilly about that in regard to our relations with other Christian mm-hmm. bodies. I mean, mm-hmm. so... Um, Good, not, but but you mentioned how you know instead of trying to impose on Scripture something that can't be found, we do have general revelation from God, which we can make wise decisions out of. Now, is that kind of tied to the um, the relationship of you know Scripture with um, tradition and reason, which is often you know if people yeah. know anything about it's a popular coin to think mm-hmm. um, it's kind of been mythologize into a three-legged stool um, type thing, which may or may not be what he was saying right. in the way we popularly regurgitate it. But he did believe reason could work, worked alongside in the matters of the Christian life and in the life of the church. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, Redeemed reason. Redeemed reason, right. He says that, you know, um, b- before, before faith... We're a little better than wild beasts, is what he says. But, okay. but after after faith, redeemed reason has quite a bit that can be um, used mm-hmm. to the glory of God. So he, yes, that's it's a Hooker is often said. It's often said that he formulated the the three legged stool of scripture, tradition, and reason, mm-hmm. and each of these are mutually informing of one another. Okay. Um, that is just, that's just not true. <laughs> that's going to be the quote. Sometimes I do uh, uh, quotes like with a, a picture with a quote from, uh, from our episode, something. Like that. <laughs> that's going to be your <laughs> Sean Duncan. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's, but it's not true. Sean Duncan episode, whatever. Don't protest. <laughs> well, he's, he says, he says it's in book three, I believe, but he, it's it really, if you, if you want an illustration of it, it's really more like a ladder. Okay. It's a it's a ladder with scripture at the top of it. What he says is that in those places where where scripture is clear, mm-hmm. that that's where the place of where credit is due, right? right. So the, the the argument ends there, mm-hmm. right? If right. scripture is clear about it, that's it. Right. But he recognizes that scripture is was given for a particular purpose. It was not to tell us about everything that could be spoken of in this world um, which is not to say that any of it's false but it just doesn't say lots of things Um, but scripture where scripture's uh, clear it that's it Mm -hmm. below that interestingly he puts reason he puts uh he puts demonstrable arguments from reason which is not the same thing as i make a good point about something it's it's is this unavoidable Mm -hmm. right um, and so I think that this is what even Luther meant, you know, at, at the diet when he was, um, mm-hmm. when he was saying by scripture or by plain reason, by plain reason. Yeah. he uses plain reason as well, mm-hmm. which is interesting because he had a low, very low view of, of reason. But, um, I think all the reformers kind of grappled with the reason question, uh, because there, there is such thing as a redeemed reason, 
right? Right. And I, it was the first time I ever heard that phrase redeemed reason, but... It but it isn't, isn't it true, and maybe you can tell me this, is that it seemed... I've heard it said from other Lutherans that the Luther was very... He didn't. He wasn't very sanguine about reason in terms of that sort of quorum deo, you know, sort of before God sort of sure. sense. But in terms of oh, in terms of the the below the things below the things below, definitely for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he, we don't have to, we could go on forever about Luther, but um, basically, uh, he he never had. I don't think he really arguably never had a single work devoted to addressing. Uh, reason or natural law, um, you know, because those are very related topics. Um, what kind of prompted him was in the mid-1520s when the peasant rebellion mm-hmm. started. Okay. And he said, okay, we need to have order. We need to have, um, you know, and, and, he, and he argued against that type of political uprising. Uh, and, he, and he used natural law arguments and arguments for mm-hmm. For reason, okay. um, in a way that he never cared much about it before, because he, he had a nominalist background and they don't have a high view of those things. But then he, uh, uh, all of a sudden, it came to you know, it could be something he could apply. So okay, so yeah, I mean, so <laughs> then yes, so there is the for for Hooker. Then there's the scripture, and then the the demonstrable reason, mm-hmm. right? Which he's arguing that the the Puritans. Uh, there they don't have that they have a they have conjecture and they have well this may be the case but it's not a, a knockdown drag out argument right. and, but then he says after that the voice of the church succeedeth is what he says okay. so you could think about it almost like you know these demonstrable arguments of reason below that is the voice of the church making uh, decisions together right mm-hmm. this sort of corporate reason of, yeah. of the body of Christ. So what he would say is that, you know, if scripture doesn't speak about something, then we are not free to decide for ourselves according to our private judgment. Right. Yeah. Then we go to these, these things of reason. Then we go to the voice of the church. If after all of that, that there is still nothing, you know, um, that would cause us to go in either direction, then we can start to say, well, this is a, a new spot where we need to make, decision well that's kind of the what scripture says about the spirit of truth leading us into all truth mm-hmm. having that process of dragging it out that, and that the corporate reasoning process i said that's immediately what makes me it makes me think of what the scripture pres- prescribed in those situations mm-hmm. um where decisions have to be made it's it's not always an individual private thing that you know it's, it's not like oh this sounds reasonable and good so let's do it like there's more to it there's more of it's more of a like you said uh dragged out thing so mm-hmm. um cool so um i guess um what were some of the anything surprising along throughout your study and i know even before you started with your phd you had to strong interest in hooker and he was one of your you know mm-hmm. things you just personally loved reading on your own and studying is there anything anything surprising about him or the time period of the history that um you would have never thought that just you know came at you like you know and made it more fun and interesting even <laughs> than it was before uh yeah oh yeah well the thing about hooker is that he's such a an expansive mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, his his big work. It's it's not only a work of theology, but it's also a work of philosophy, and it's also a work of political philosophy as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Um, so there's always something something new to to find with him. I've been surprised at at how much um, reading Hooker has helped. Even in stuff like, okay, how how far does the state have the ability to, you know, make a, you know, make a, um, in our COVID protocols, mm-hmm. you know, right. like, well, how, how do we think, how do we think about what the state can say, do, and not say, do, right? right? I mean, it's a very, uh, it's a big question, right, it, right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, 
so all you know he he's got he's got several a couple of books um on that so you know the political philosophy it's um that's it's an interesting point because uh i came across hooker in two in two different in two different things i've read over the past few years russell russell kirk the conservative um mm-hmm. century conservative author his book the conservative mind where he kind of just does a survey of the history of conservative thought and major people behind conservative thought. Um, it's mainly modern, what I mean by modern 1700 onward, but he has like what he calls like some proto conservatives. He mm-hmm. puts Richard Hooker in mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I also read Gary Dorian's uh, basically the history of liberal theology. And he like sees Hooker as like a proto liberal in the sense of um, the, I guess the broadness that he he, he brings to his so it was interesting. Like you get two different like he's the conservative, he's the liberal, based on you know, mm-hmm. and I think there's there was truth in both of those works. You know, obviously, Hooker's in a much different time than our you know the way we see politics and our you know our political spectrum continuum we have now and how the how terms like conservative and liberal are even defined, but. Um, and I meant to, to, to pull some, I could probably, um, uh, I could probably edit it into the episode, but I meant to pull the quotes from each of those writings and why they thought Hooker represented like an early version of this, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh, tendency, not even ideology, just tendency. They weren't mm-hmm. trying to, to impose an ideology. They were both, you know, and they're both Kirk and Dory. I mean, they're both responsible in that sense. And so, you know, I might just <laughs> add that in, um, later on, but so. Uh, so yeah, um, and so you're, you're going to continue your work with Hooker and, um, and, uh, Whitaker. And, uh, is there anything about, uh, any similarities and dif- differences, um, between, between them that you're kind of cleaning so far or just finding with them? I, well, I, you know, I just started this past year and I, I'm doing it part time so mm-hmm. it, I'm still pretty early in that um, w- William Whitaker was suggested to me by my okay. my advisor okay. so I can't really speak a whole sure. lot uh, to him sure. um, so I've been mostly mostly looking at Hooker at the beginning to make okay. sure that I'm on solid footing for Good. what I want to do later Good. I did want to say though um, just to give people a, a sort of a I don't know a a taste of what hookers like. Mm-hmm. Um, he will at various points. So there's eight books of the of the laws, right? Mm-hmm. Of the laws of the ecclesiastical polity. What is really interesting is that he will he will. There's a a similar theme through throughout it. Mm-hmm. And you'll, you'll see it in book one with his definition of God. And you'll see it in book five with his definition or his, his understanding of Christ as sort of Chalcedonian Christology, right? But then you will also see it in book eight with his understanding of the state. Because okay. he believes that this, I mean, England, everybody who was you know, a, a member of the state was also a member of the church, right? Well, it's, it's the state being like a divine organism. Of being, of being, well, at least on, on the sort of visible church level, yes. And I think that's where Kirk, Kirk was trying to tie him in with kind of that Burke had that type of... Like, yes. And, and so that's where you kind of saw a trajectory coming from. Burke, Burke, Burke is influenced by yeah. Hooker, yeah. Awesome. So I'm, yeah, you're going, the tendency, so you follow through book eight and you... Were, yeah, so this, so this blew my mind. This was... Uh, this was again Torrance Kirby, but in in book five he talks about how he goes through this whole long uh, thing about the sacraments and how we participate in Christ via the sacraments. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has he has the divine and human natures. Um, like I said before, it is a reform Christology in that there's there is the communicatio, sure, yeah. the of the miasticum is miasticum is not there. Sure, um, but there's still the things that can be communicated to the human nature that the nature can understand or 
or can receive mm-hmm. are there. Um, but what he ends up saying is that, okay, there are two natures in Christ, one person in Christ, right? Mm-hmm. That's standard Christology. Yeah. Well, in, in book eight, he says that the church and the, and the commonwealth are two different natures of one thing. One. Okay. So it's uh, his ecclesiology and his politic <laughs> is kind of, mm-hmm. are very much more, not meshed, but but together in a way that you don't see, and you don't. Yeah, I mean the reason the reason that he has his Christology be one of the reasons he has his Christology the way that it is being a more separate is that he's going to argue that for in okay. book eight that the the church and the state are do communicate some things but don't other interesting things. that is very interesting. yeah because in one you got Christ and the other you got his bride right yeah very interesting. Um, and then, and then in, in book one, he he says there's a, there's a whole long uh, uh, stream of literature that talks about okay why does Hooker say that there is an eternal law there's a first eternal law and a second eternal law mm-hmm. because Aquinas who has a very similar understanding of law doesn't have a second eternal or yeah doesn't have a second eternal law. Right. Well, Kirby says, well, this is, the reason that that is is because it is there's a hypostatic relation there as well. So he will he has it all th- all throughout the. So he books, sees he hypostatic, hypostatic relationships in, in all these different. Mm-hmm. Isn't that cool? It is pretty cool. I never. I mean, I know like the some of the other continental reformers saw things in terms of with state and church as kind of a kingdom on the right and a kingdom on the left, God ruling in two different ways. Um, so there was always, you know, that sense of God's sovereignty over everything. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that the way Hooker saw it on that is definitely, it's definitely original to him and very interesting. So I'd be off to read more. Now, as far as that series, I know the, the copy I got of Modern English Laws, laws of ecclesiastical polity. That's like books. I think it's go through book four. If I'm not. Mistaken. Yeah, that's right. Because book five is so. Much, I mean, it's as big as. That's as big as, and that's usually what I hear. A lot of the big ecclesiological arguments that appeal to Hooker. I always, whenever they appeal to him or cite him, it's always something from book five. It seems. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like book five is like, you know, the, you know, his magnum opus. I guess or is you know, it's like where you to go to so um yep. so uh last question why is hooker important for christianity or for any christian to read not even having to be an anglican well i think there are a lot of reasons but to go back to what we were saying before particularly on let's just say on the Protestant side of things, why would a Protestant Christian want to read Hooker? Um, his understanding of the, the, the proper, the proper place of scripture within this sort of matrix of, of general revelation, mm-hmm. natural law, all of that um, gives so much. It's, it's such a wise way to think. Yeah. Because you have you have some people who who would say, okay, Scripture speaks about these certain things, but it doesn't speak about other things. How do we bridge that gap? Mm-hmm. You could say, well, there's a there's a specific, let's say, the Holy Spirit came to me, mm-hmm. right, and that that's how I know that this is just as certain, even though it's not in Scripture. Or you could say that no, Scripture actually does talk about everything, right, or. On the more Catholic side, you say, "Well, this the Spirit-led magisterium. Mm-hmm. That's what bridges the gap." Mm-hmm. Hooker says, "No, none of those, none of those work. There is a a place of divine certainty in those that reason for which the Scripture was instituted. But other than that, we have the ability as creatures made in the image of God to act in wisdom according to the." the laws which God has put down in other spheres of life. And it, it really does open up. Okay. If I don't have a specific word from God here in the Bible, okay, what do I do? Mm -hmm. Am I able to move forward? Right. You know, 
Well, yes, you are able to move forward. You got to make sure you go through the through the ladder, right? Right, the ladder. Um, but once you do, then you can make you can make a decision based upon um, the way God has set up the world and and uh, hit your own reason, mm-hmm. and you're able to to know that God is is with you, not infallibly, right? You could be wrong, right? But um, God has has created this world too, mm-hmm. as well as given us Holy Scripture. So I think any any uh, Christian that wants to know the relation, you know, when Scripture doesn't talk about something, what do I do? Right. I, I think that's he has a very wise way to go. Awesome. Um, yes. So that was a great discussion. Thanks for being here. It sounds like um, Hooker is a theologian to really to be read, to be, um, to, to really be uh, considered for, I think, any church of any time in, you know, in, as they face issues, as they make decisions. Um, And like you said, for any Christian, I think for any Anglican to really just to, to visit or perhaps revisit if, and, uh, and to really just, like I said, make us appreciate more about um, our, our Anglican and Episcopal tradition. And I think there's something also in it for just anyone uh, who can appreciate, appreciate genius, uh, genius. And um, so, so thanks, Sean. Uh, blessings on uh, your continued ministry uh, at Trinity and in your continued studies at Edinburgh. And uh, it was a pleasure to have you, man. So love to have you on again in the future. Thanks, and, Drew. Uh, Appreciate yeah. it. God bless. Hi, and thank you for listening. This is Reverend Andrew Christensen again. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to check out our previous episodes of Doth Protest Too Much. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or another streaming service that lets you rate and review our show, please do so. Five stars, one star, however you honestly feel we can take it and would love and appreciate your feedback. Also, for any further questions or suggestions for our show, please email me at dothprotesttomuchpodcast at gmail.com. God bless your day.